Welcome to Spin It, where the worst of times can become the best of times. I'm your host, Stephanie Malik, an award-winning crisis management expert and business consulting strategist. Along with my team of experts at S. Malik Enterprises, I have worked with thousands of high-wealth individuals and businesses over the last 25 years to create customized approaches for crisis management and business consulting to ensure they take their careers, relationships, and companies to the next level. On Spin It, we pursue purpose and passion, aspiring to uncover the true story behind every guest's successes and failures, removing the mistake behind what it takes to be truly successful from those that have actually done it. I'm chatting with executives and entrepreneurs all over the globe to understand how they turned obstacles into opportunities to grow not only themselves, but their businesses. I want to impact and inspire you and as many people as possible, not by blurting out the same old motivational phrases, but with the truth and authenticity behind real success, along with the roadmaps and methodologies it takes to get there. Whether it was a scandal, a broken business model, or simply navigating the noise, we want you to learn from our mistakes. It's all in how you spin it. Today, I'll be talking to Richard DePilla, founder and CEO of Global Goodwill Ambassadors, a nonprofit public charity which utilizes global humanitarians to solve real-life problems in the most disadvantaged parts of the world. Richard started GGWA because he wanted to break the humanitarian stereotypes that didn't allow the beauty of other cultures and countries to shine through. His work and his love for sharing positivity, combined with his past experience in marketing and media, has helped him reach over 1.3 million followers on LinkedIn. In this episode, we'll be talking about how Richard brought more than 19,000 humanitarians together to make our world a better place and how he stays so positive in the face of so many problems all over the world. Welcome to the show, Richard. Hey, Richard. Thank you so much for joining me. I can't tell you how honored and privileged I am to have you on our show. It's certainly my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. Absolutely. Richard, I want to start with childhood. You have such an incredible story, but I want to tell our listeners and share with our listeners where everything kind of started. And so I understand that you didn't have a ton of money as a family growing up. Talk to me about what it was like growing up, your relationship with your parents, where you lived, your siblings, etc. Well, um, I had the misfortune of losing my, my dad when I was four years old. So we were, we were living, you know, what would have been a pretty good life. He was, he was in his thirties. He had gone to uh, Korea, was in World War II and that portion of it, and uh, came back and was an electrical engineer. So doing well, totally loved my mother, totally loved the four, I'm sorry, the three children that he, that he had. Uh, My older brother, Pierre, who has since passed, myself and my sister, Linda, and he'd bring us home something every day and always had something for my mom. And it was, it was so wonderful to see. We also lived with my um, grandmother and and grandfather just because that's the way it was. They they came over together first, you know, and then brought the family over to, from Sicily. And, um, one day, my, I remember this day, I was out on a sidewalk playing, which he used to be able to do back in, in those days. Um, and and this was probably the early part of 1960. And I noticed he came home early. You know, he did stop and hand me a little piece of paper, which he used to, he used to draw little things for us and things. And then I didn't see him again after that. He had sometime during the night, he had left and went to the hospital and he ended up being put in an iron lung and later later passed away. They said he had passed of a, a brain aneurysm. That pretty much was a devastating thing to my mother who never remarried and she moved the family out of, out of the city into the suburbs and she ended up working two and three jobs, and eventually she was the um, the secretary at the rectory of the school, which enabled 
us children. Oh, I, I missed that she was she was six months pregnant when my dad died. So that was our fourth sibling, Angelo, who was who was born, uh, named my father, and that's and that's my middle name also. So um, she worked at the rectory for forty years, and um, yeah, I think her salary never changed that much. It was four or five thousand dollars a year, but everybody loved her. She was went to church three times a week and and was good and kind to people and was a glowing example to myself and and our family, you know, like everybody. That might not just our immediate family, our extended family. And when I say extended family, that is a huge in Italians, they got big families, and then, then our house was always, the uh, door was always open. Everyone wanted to come because of the good food that, that she was serving or my grandmother was making. So our house was like a hotel, and it didn't matter, you know, what neighborhood you were coming from before, I guess, j- just because of the way that um, immigration was then, most of the neighborhoods were set up culturally. You know, obviously there's people crossed in, in and out of the neighborhoods and things. And, you know, so we had friends, you know, like I was used to friends of, of all colors and cultures. And to me that that was that was the way to live was being kind to one another. And I, I know that that, sh- that shaped me who, who I was. Yeah, I was just going to ask you that because I did read that about you whenever I was researching having you on the show. I read how people were in and out of the house all the time and just so welcome at your home and so connected. And so my question was, I have a couple questions around this. My first one is, was there ever any scary situations? Because I know your mother and grandmother were very welcoming and having anybody come who who needed connection, really. Was there ever any like maybe not so good times or did everything kind of work out? Well, um, everything worked out when we were young as far as people coming in in and out of the house and everything. That turned out great. When my older brother turned 20, he was diagnosed with schizophrenia. And again, you're talking about in the... 70s and you know went went through a terrible time with shock treatments and all kinds of things and um, he never could quite live a normal life with that you know but we, we always treated him fine but he had a tough bout going on earlier so that was a that was something very difficult and, and eventually he couldn't make it anymore in the world so he, he did what he had to do, and that was something that was very difficult for for me and for the family. I'm so sorry. I, too. So as you're speaking, I'm, I'm drawing our commonalities together. I'm first generation here from both sides of my parents. My father drowned when I was three, and I have a younger brother who has significant, significant mental illness and has been through a lot of that same different kind of experimental treatments or just trying to, you know, get right. And it's been a really tough road for him as well. So I can I can absolutely relate to that. And I'm sorry that your family had to go through that. Talk to me about um, about connection. Do you think that your father being so incredibly connected to the family and your mom and dad being so in love do you think that this has driven your desire and your need not only to connect with others, but to also provide a platform for people to actually connect together? I like to tell little stories with with my content, and I have zero, there's nothing political at all in it. There's no message. I'm not trying to win people over. When I... I take the time to look for little snippets in life, in in video, and when it makes me feel good, I add how it makes me feel to the content of the video. So I, which is just as important as the video. Matter of fact, it's more important. The message is more important than the video. Quite often, I might see that example in a shot of nature 
which doesn't even have people in it, but it still reflects something that is good and wonderful and loving. And that's the point that I, I, I make quite often, fortunately not quite often, but sometimes people have a problem understanding my metaphorical approach. They want to look at things totally literally. I still laugh at people who tell me that, because I'm only on LinkedIn. I don't have Facebook. I don't have anything else. I don't, I have enough people on LinkedIn to keep track of. And I, and I truly try to answer anybody back that writes me a, a complete sentence. You know, it, I, I cannot answer the highs, but, you know, like I, I still get a lot of people who, or I shouldn't say a lot, <laughs> but I get people who say, LinkedIn's a professional network. This belongs on Facebook. I'm here, um, I just respond, I'm not on Facebook. I could go into the fact that it it is a social media network and professionals like nice like to see nice things too and they enjoy positive message whether you're a CEO of a company or whether you're just a regular working person but as a professional it doesn't mean that you you have to always you know what do you always look you're always looking for a job because they're headhunters or something like that no even and even if you are so what if if you view something that puts a smile on your face or makes you feel good for a couple seconds, you know? Absolutely. And we're going to talk about LinkedIn and your followers and the numbers in a little a little bit later in the show. But I couldn't agree with you more because I know for me, you know, I have very long days and I have some breaks in there, but I know for me, it's very nice. Like it breaks up the monotony of the day. It puts a smile on my face. It kind of restores my faith in humanity. I mean, I can go on and on and on about that. But I remember, I mean, I've obviously been watching your content for a very, very long time, Richard, like we've talked about. And some of the things, I shouldn't say some, I would say so much of what you've posted resonates with me. But I do remember something that was fairly recent that I actually didn't have any plans on talking about today, but this actually resonated with me. Um, You posted something about a soldier who had just lost her life and she was holding a baby. Do you remember that post? I do. And I just said something back like, gosh, Richard, I'm so shattered about this. And I don't know if you recall, but I I think there was 90 comments on that. And several of them, I'm uncomfortable to say a lot, but several of them were very nasty. They were like, she knew what she was getting into, you know, don't buy into that, blah, blah, blah. I mean, just, and, and I was, I was astounded because I'm not on social media a lot and because I do have a social team and because I really, really post exactly what I mean and how I feel. And and I was actually blown away by how many people stopped and took time to write something negative over something so caring, honoring, loving, and supportive that that young woman's family could have seen. And for me, that was even more shattering than the message that you posted. So I, I really, I understand everything you're saying and I totally believe, you know, I, and this was a very small incident for me. So I can't imagine for you how much that probably hurts a bit because people write this stuff whenever you're just, you're just trying to make, you know, some good in the world. And so how does that make you feel when you're looking through something that you've posted, hoping to lighten somebody's day or, or spread a little tiny bit of hope? And then and then it gets received like that, even by just a few haters that are just so mean. How does that make you feel? I think if I didn't have a um, an understanding of the social media environment right now and, and the fact that it just comes with the territory if you're going to be on social media. If I didn't have that, it would make me feel a lot worse. When I do read them, I I feel really sorry for the people that have that much hate in their heart that, you know, you can't see how how loving that soldier was and and how caring. That was all her with a, a little baby from the country and and that was a life lost 
way too soon. And for anybody to have any anything negative about that, you know, she doesn't represent a government. She doesn't represent a, an ideology. She's a person. And she was carrying and holding. You can, just by looking at her, you could see the way she was holding the baby. Like, she was not trying to get away from the baby. She was not trying to dispel the baby. She was not a one ounce angst about the baby. She was really, really just trying to hold and comfort the baby. That's the exact reason that I posted it. I saw pure love in that in that picture. And that's something that, that I don't shy away from, you know, like as a, as a content provider is, you know, like, I mean, to me, it's the most beautiful thing in the world to find in any form. It's the exact juice that, that makes things happen, you know, like, so, um, I do look for those things. And every once in a while, I venture into an area that touches me that is a difficult subject. You know, like recently I, I posted after uh, watching the young gymnast give their testimony on conference to Congress about a subject that's near and dear to my heart, and that's the abuse that they went through and child abuses is probably my, my number one focus right now with our foundation and and something I support wholeheartedly. It's a um, it, it is one of the largest cancers in the world. So um, and it just it needs to stop. So coming from a home that when my father passed away, my mother had a complete psychotic break and she never recovered. And she was very, very verbally, emotionally, and physically abusive. So much so, I was in the hospital nine times with broken bones before I was 12. But so much of what you say, Richard, is people will think that, like, the kids will report or they will think that the kids will have, like, it'll be very, very obvious or it'll be very, you know, you'll be able to tell. Most abuse cases, as you well know, are not like that. And even the abused child still wants to stay with the parent. So how are you putting this foundation? I believe it's called My Body, My Program. Well, our foundation is Global Goodwill Ambassadors, but our core initiative is My Body is My Body Program. And we're in over 50 countries in over 30 languages now. It's an absolutely free program. It's animated. It's lyrical. It's interactive, and it's given free to any teacher, anybody that wants to teach it. If you're, you have a language that you want it taught in your country that is spoken that we don't have it in, Chrissy Sykes, who's amazing, amazing, amazing person who created the program, will get it. And, you know, we make it easy to download the program and teach our Global Goodwill Ambassadors are teaching people how to teach the program through our learning institute. Okay, so let's go back because I want to be really focused on this. This is so, so important. So let's talk about this. Is this a curriculum? So, like, tell me how if somebody wants to get involved, if our listeners have, you know, they're suspecting that somebody might be being abused or we have a younger one that possibly may be listening, tell me how they get involved. Tell me how they find your information. Tell me what it actually is. Talk to me about the overall, the GGWA program. Okay. Well, with that initiative portion is part of the, the now there's many things we do around the world. We have 18,000 volunteers and a lot of uh, other NGOs that are part of our, our family and network doing doing all sorts of things. But our core initiative, again, is My Body is My Body. So that is definitely on our website, which is globalgoodwillambassadors.org. The first step of the approach is is to teach people about their self-identity and their self-love, that they are a temple. <laughs> they are not to be abused. They are not to abuse themselves. They are to love themselves. So that's incorporated into the program and then it talks about your actual physical body itself 
and the fact that nobody has a right to touch you in certain places, no matter who they are. So this is done, again, because we're trying to reach people at a young age, and we have some iterations and variations of the thing depending on the ages that it's being taught. But, you know, we want to reach people at a young age. And uh, I say people, children at a young age, and teach them this so that they understand that it's not okay. It's not okay for your mother to strike you. She doesn't. And if she does, you have to tell somebody, and here's who you can tell. Here's how you approach it. So that's what's involved in the program. On our website also is our courses that we have a we have a, um, a learning management system we have courses many of them can be applied for uh, continuing education units a lot of that course is totally free that, that course my body is my body so you can you can learn how to teach it if you want to teach it to your own kids and you, you can download the videos and teach it to your own children as a, a single person. You can teach it if you're a church group. You could, as a teacher, if you can get it into your school, you could teach it in your school. It's being taught in orphanages. You know, like we have it. We have clips of people singing the "My Body Is My Body" song all over the world. It's been taught in Iran. It's been taught in the Middle East. It has been taught in countries that have a lot of human rights issues. So um, the statistics have been getting worse, unfortunately. It used to be that one out of two child would be abused in some way, which sounds horrible. It is nearing the high 60 percentile right now after COVID. So we're ruining generations. You know, people say, well, you know, I'm looking like to support child trafficking. Start with this. Where do you think, you know, this leads to kids leaving home, living homeless, end up getting trafficked. I viewed this out of anything that I've ever seen. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of great issues. We do things for, for veterans, kids. We do, we do so many wonderful things. And of all the things that I've seen, I want us to focus on doing what we're doing because this works. We're trying to collect some money, and our foundation is different than, let me tell you something, we are the purest foundation in the world. We take nothing. Everything that we do goes, you say, I want it to go to the St. Jude's Cancer Home that's where it goes. Everything other than what the bank takes for transferring the money into the thing. Unlike big organizations that do wonderful things but have huge overhead, we own no buildings. We have no debts other than the accounting software or things like that. So when people, when I see something like child abuse prevention, there's a stigma around it that people don't want to touch. I don't know if it's that they don't understand that it's a huge problem, but it's not something that, I mean, it's easy for people to support when we do something for St. Jude's Child Life Program. It's easy for people to support that. It doesn't seem as easy when you mention the child abuse prevention programs. And it's unfortunate because that is probably the root cause to an awful lot. You know, you know what you had to go through. Yep. And I know the choices that I made because of it. Exactly. And you are a survivor. I don't know how many people survive it. Well, and also too, Great, great point, okay? My survival line wasn't straight. It wasn't like, oh, I really need to healthily and non-toxically get away from this. It wasn't. It was a series of very, very, very bad choices. It was a series of 
the wrong boyfriends or the wrong, wrong job choice or the wrong, you know, dropping out of school or the wrong, I mean, I could go on. I mean, that would be three podcasts, Richard. So it wasn't, I didn't have, I didn't have support or who to talk to or what to do next, or I just didn't know what to do next. And so, and I was, I, I mean, if you look at the abuse rate, like the stuff that you're talking about, mine was a two. And so things that are inconceivable 30 years ago or 40 years ago, you know, now it's happening 50, 60, 70 times a day. Just pick up any periodical, pick up, read any newspaper. It doesn't really matter what it is. There is some form of abuse, even so much as parents prostituting out their child or giving their child drugs or something to get them calm or relaxed to be able to do something further negative. It's just insurmountable right now. So you're right. It touches so many things at a young age. If you stopped with this foundation, if you stopped here and got these people help and got them knowledge and educated them, how many different sectors would this take away from actually hurting other people? It's amazing. Yes. It, what you're saying is is true. I'm, I'm not convinced that the types of incidents are are getting worse. I believe that in in a 24-hour news cycle and all the outlets, just like your channel and, and any other outlet, I think that things are brought forth now. There's a lot of statistics of how this is abuse is something that has been carried on from generation to generation and goes way back. The same with alcoholism and a lot of other other things. You know, and that's the thing. People will will recognize, you know, there's a 12-step program, alcoholism is bad, everything like that. Do do you really think there's alcoholism in a a parent without there being abuse of the child? Absolutely not. It's impossible. Yeah, absolutely I mean, it's impossible because they're not being a good parent if that's what they're doing. I mean, no matter what, no matter what, let's say that we're going to be the most generous possible. Let, let's say the child's not getting hit, beaten, striked, whatever you want to call it, whatever whatever you want to call it. Let's say that that's not happening. There's emotional abuse. There's neglect. There's safety issues. There's every kind of issue in the entire world. So like, yeah, saying that they, well, my, my mom never hit me, but, you know, I saw her do this. It all stays as wounds, Richard. It all stays as wounds. I'm glad we had a chance to touch on on that in particular, because that's, like I said, very important to me. I wish I could talk more about that to my following and network, but I I haven't really figured out exactly what it is that makes it something that is so uncomfortable for people to have dialogue about. I don't think people want to wrap their head around it or it's so pervasive that so many people have been through it and don't want to talk about it because it's something that they they just don't want to talk about. And I think that there's probably a lot of adults that needed to get some form of counseling when they were at a young age and probably still need the counseling now about it. They have to talk about it. They have to get it off their chest. It sounds like you've come to a place where where you're comfortable doing that and I also believe that there's people that may not ever come to that place. They may be, they may have a new life. They may be carrying on, but those memories and the, and the shaping of the, them as a person are affected by a lack of trust. And they may be the haters that you you were speaking about earlier. Make an unforgettable impression the moment you walk in the room with Executive Presence Elevated. This program is an exclusive and intensive online program designed specifically for you and led by me, Stephanie Malik. After 25 years as a business transformation and crisis specialist, I've learned just how integral executive presence is to gaining you the influence, prestige, and recognition you deserve and desire. Whether you're a mid-level manager looking to advance to the next level or an entrepreneur looking to inspire confidence in your investors, this program will transform your belief in what is possible. Find out more by going to stephaniemalik.com forward slash elevated. Your, your entire neuro-linguistic processing changes when you're wounded as a child. Every single thing that you endure, the communication that you endure, the lack of love that you endure, even if it's unintentional, it doesn't really matter what it is. If you feel it, 
that is a true so, that's true. Something is happening that's true for you and for your for your body and for your head. For me, Richard, I remember, I mean, again, going through years and years of therapy with this, people would say, Stephanie, you know, you need to tell your story. And I'd be like, here's my thing, Richard. I always felt like so many other people had it so much worse. Like I always lessened my own story. And it it was because it wasn't because I wouldn't share it. It was just because in my head, I had justified it so hugely that it wasn't bad enough. So I backpedaled away from my own story and owning my own hurt and my own sadness. And thank goodness, I had a bunch of people in my life like you who wouldn't stand for it. They were like, we're not doing that. Like when you're ready and when you're, when you're through it, do you have any idea how many people that you can help and, and I, I really didn't, but I, I said, I'll tell my story. To, if, if I'll just help one person, I'll tell it to anybody. Like, I have nothing to hide. I am the most open, transparent person. If I can help, I will help. But also, too, I believe that there needs to be a sense of responsibility. And so getting back to your question that you just said, where you're a little perplexed on why it's so, um, I don't know, cagey, like why people don't really want to talk about it. Very interesting. Two years ago, I had a conversation I accidentally with it with a New York police officer, just a sweet, sweet gentleman. He'd been with the force for, you know, 20 or 25 years. And um, we were talking and we started talking about child abuse. And I honestly don't even remember how it came up. And I said, yeah, it's weird. People don't want to talk about it. And he goes, I have an answer to that. And I said, oh, please share. And he said, oh, he's like, because child abuse is subjective. And I said, wait, what? Wait, 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 what? <laughs> and he goes, well, he's like, think about it. Okay, think about the line. Think about think about your grandparents and think about your parents and think about your friends and your friends. Think about the different cultures. Think about everywhere. You know, you're multicultural. You're, you've been places. Think about that. He said, if you warn your child not to be untruthful, okay, and then you do a timeout and then you do a privilege taken away, and then and this has gone on for quite some time, you know, three or four months, and your your child's seven or eight, and they continue to do it, and it's getting worse and worse and worse. And then you you talk to your child and you say, if you do this again, you know, daddy's going to have to spank you. Or if you say, oh, if you do this again, you are not going to prom, whatever it is, something significant. Some people would say taking prom away is not an appropriate punishment. That is considered abuse. He said some people would think a swat on the butt. Now keep in mind, a swat on the bottom, okay, is abuse. So he said, instead of everybody having to actually go through and go, wait, is this abuse? Or wait, is this abuse? Like, what is it? Everybody just kind of threw their arms up and was like, unless there's a real problem, meaning that there's physical damage done. And he's like, I'll prove it to you. And I said, okay. And he goes, look at our laws. He's go, go through state law and look at what the laws are. He's like, most states say you can spank your child. Here's the rule. And he's like, the rule is you may not physically and intentionally strike or whatever it is, whatever the, whatever the word is, is, to do harm upon a child. So you can swat them, but you can't intentionally go, I'm going to physically do harm to them and cause damages, which is bruising, broken bones, et cetera, et cetera. He's like, just go through the case law in the U.S. And he's like, and then also too, look at the last time that case law was revised. So he's like, it's systemic and it has gone on for a really long time. So people don't want to talk about it because they're like, what really is abuse? Is spanking my child abuse or is pulling away an activity that they were going to do because they lied or bro broke Mrs. Molly's window? You know, what? where does abuse start and where does it end? And he said, and nobody wants to get involved in that conversation because there's too many opinions. I think it's a, a learned response and, and one that to me makes makes a lot of sense, especially when I know that there's other things, you know, in other cultures that might view things differently, you know, like about my grandmother, bless her heart, used to chase us with a cane. At, right. At my, mine too. Years my, old. my grandmother would get a wet rag and she would just, cause she couldn't catch us. You know, she was 12,000 years old. She, she couldn't catch us. So she would just throw things at us or take off her shoe and throw it at us. She had no intention of hurting us. She was trying to get our attention to come back and like do the dishes or like, you know, clean up our mess that we had, whatever it was. I didn't feel abused by that. But imagine doing that now. Imagine a dad taking off his shoe and throwing it at a kid. That is considered 
abuse. So he's like, this is where it is. He's like, you know, if we don't have you to sit there and go, yeah, but, you know, my 90-year-old grandmother did it and she was so sweet and she was from Portugal and she was so cute. Why can't somebody else do it? And he's like, that's why, Stephanie, everybody's kind of like, uh, I don't really know. And I was like, you know what? That makes a lot of sense. Not that I necessarily agree or disagree. It just made a lot of sense, him walking through it. No, I, st- I still think it makes sense. It doesn't take away the fact that there's intentional, with malice, abuse that it continues for a long period of time and is destroying children. And it's huge. It's not that it's there. It's prevalent. Like I said, when, when, when you can say if there's 10 kids standing, that six and a half of them have been abused in, in, some, in some way, physical or emotional, it's still important enough for me and for our program for us to, to do our part to prepare young people for what to do if they feel abused. That part is not really subjective. If the child feels abused, then the child needs needs some outlet to get rid of that abuse or address that abuse. That's one of the things I've constantly said to, to every child is people can't say, no, that's not your feeling or no, that's not right. They cannot say that. If that is your feeling, I mean, you can walk through and you can add color and you could add flavor to it. You can kind of walk them through kind of what they're feeling, but you cannot ever tell a child that that's not happening or that's wrong because that does the worst amount of damage and wounds that is just, it's just so horrible for a child to feel like they're not heard. So why did you start this foundation? What happened? Why did you do this? I got on... LinkedIn in 2006. A few years after that, I was living in San Francisco and I didn't need a job. So what I liked about it as it grew was that I liked meeting and learning the same way you have a podcast. I liked talking to people. I thought it was fascinating to talk to people who I knew a little bit about from their profile in other countries and other cultures and ask them questions. You know, that's not something that young people in the U.S. are taught. And even though in 2006 I wasn't young, I wasn't old either. And it certainly wasn't anything that, that we had been taught in school. So I started to realize from, from being that kind of questioner and communicator, I started to realize that many of them did some really wonderful things. And I thought, you know, I had no idea. I had no idea that somebody in that country that is always portrayed on media like this spends time at an orphanage every weekend helping people. I I mean, that was the furthest thing from my mind. I thought that they were just all shouted things. You know, like, and I got really embarrassed at my own feeling. And it it worked on me a little bit. You know, it's like, wait a minute, I wasn't brought up this way. I was like, I wonder if there's other people that know this. So I, at the time, I, I remember the first person that I learned something about like that. I, I kind of like just did a little graphic and I highlighted them and I wanted other people to know, particularly in the U.S. But, you know, I didn't realize I wanted people to know this person is a LinkedIn Global Goodwill Ambassador. I called it LinkedIn Global Goodwill Ambassador. I said she spends her weekends and she started going occasionally and then just kept going back and back because this orf- the kids from the orphanage then grew fond and looked forward to seeing her. And I said, that kind of person needs her story told. And I had a decent amount of followers even back then because if you're old enough and on, on a platform long enough, you're going to get pe- more people will, will know you. And I was on early on. So I started building my followers and connections 
back then. And because I was trying to reach people from all these different cultures to ask them questions, and they weren't always that tough a question, you know, it was just, hey, you know, tell me about that great wall. (laughs) Have you ever been to it? I mean, can you actually walk on it? After a while, people started to really, I mean, on that very first one, I remember that instead of the usually 10 or 12 comments that I got the next day, I had 500. I looked at my little thing. I said, 500? What what is it, my anniversary or something like that? And it was all from people (laughs) thanking me for highlighting this person. So this was early on, and there was nobody else doing this on LinkedIn. Nobody. That's amazing because because people are really, really. So I always tell people I'm a constant and curious student. I will ask questions that no one else in the room will ask. So the fact that you did this and then made it public, I think is amazing because so many people want to know, but they would never ask the question. So that's just awesome. Exactly. And it was very much like that. And it grew and it grew because more people wanted to be part of it. I dropped the word LinkedIn because I was scared that... Jeff was going to come after you? (laughs) Yes, exactly. So it became Global Google (laughs) Ambassadors. And before long, you know, like I was... At at that time, I was just giving out certificates. And the only thing that qualified was that you had to have something on your LinkedIn profile showing that you did humanitarian work, charity work, or whatever. So you were well-rounded beyond just your job. So early on, that's that's what the epitus was and what started it. And the whole premise behind it was that I was going to bring these people together in a family unit and put them in groups together so that they can ask each other questions because I already met them. I'll tell you, they're nice people. Here's what I know about them, you know. Please connect with them. I would tell people, connect with them. And, and and their connection started to grow that would have never grown. They would have never met somebody in the U.S. To go, who has connections that are in the Dominican Republic or South America or Brazil or, or whatever. And, and, and then people wanted to be involved. And Lisa Jones got involved about five years in and became the president. And with her leadership, it is taken off. I mean, she just... We had people in every country, and we had what we call chapters. So we named country chairs, and they named directors, and then we started doing projects there. So when we started looking towards a country, an individual country, we asked them, what are your needs? I mean, it's easy for me to turn around and run a drive to feed hungry people, but I don't want to send it to USA because I know that 20 cents on the dollar by the time they they pay their staffs and everything else they get, get to it. So I know you. But Richard, you know you know people don't really know that, right? You know how many people like just they donate and they're like, "Oh, I give this much," but they don't know what the company that's collecting the funds, they don't know how much they're either. And I don't mean it rudely at all, whether whether you you said it so eloquently earlier, whether it's overhead or owning buildings or whatever it is for their costs, they don't realize how little goes to the actual organization that actually needs the funding. So the fact that you're shining light on that is just, it's just amazing. Well, when it comes down to it, that's the only reason that I wanted us to become an official 501c3 and foundation because I I unequivocally say we're the purest in the world. You know, now there may be other people who do things like this, but what we do is we've asked people. We've asked somebody in Ghana or or one of the, or South Africa or Nigeria, what do you need? What is the biggest need that you you see in your country that is not being handled. And sometimes they say, well, there's a village that got flooded and washed out and and the people need to rebuild everything. So now we know we have a village in 
Nigeria, and it's in a certain part of Nigeria, and, and it's been washed away, and they've lost all their food and everything like that. And we, we have a chapter president there, and we can run an initiative and get those people who we now have known for 10 years They've been so that's so that's incredible because that was my next question. My next question was like, so so what's the purpose of the foundation? But every single country can be different and have its own initiative of what they need. Yes, and with our organization, because I didn't start it looking to be a foundation. I never thought I would. We needed to be a foundation in order to be accepted as a United Nations SDG Action affiliate. You know, I didn't really care about that, but we needed to have that so the people, we needed to become a 501c3 so the people could make a, a donation that was tax deductible and, and exactly. legitimate. So it would, took a lot of, I was fighting it for a long time. And then I, I knew that we needed to do that for legitimacy because there was too many people that potentially we're scamming people. We are the antithesis of the scammers. We take that cause that has been given to us that, and then we take that money and we actually have the money brought when the Beirut explosion happened. We had goods that we had shipped there and actually met by Global Goodwill Ambassadors, also part of another organization, I think it was Gift Global, and they were on the ground there, along with our Global Goodwill Ambassadors, going around handing food. Now, they, they bypassed the Red Cross process for the tents and stuff, because that process goes through the government first. But if you go through that process... When the money bag comes out, at the end, it is, oh, I can, oh, the money bag, here's what you got. So we bypass those things because we're not dumb. We know these things. You said a lot of people don't know it. You're right, but we do. So that's what we, we wanted to be, and that's what we do right now. So there's no need, you know, like I don't have... I don't have any needs right now. I worked hard for 40 years of my life, had worked for some big companies, made a good living, decided to buy a house to be near my grandchildren and granddaughter. So I bought a condo right on the beach. I'm looking at the ocean right now. It's beautiful. You're filling everyone up. You're constantly, constantly pouring into others. How do you get filled back up? I've been asked that question before, and it, and it always, like, sets me on teeter down. Um, and then you're like, hang up, click, delete. <laughs> you're like, I have, you know, my plan when I, when I retired was that I would get little infusions of being filled back up through taking trips that I used to take trips and do. They were always in my in my way, they were always cultural trips. If I went on a cruise somewhere, when I got off, I didn't go to the place that everybody else was. I, I said to the taxi driver, I want to go to the smallest little fishing village there is, and I want to be able to hire somebody and go out in a boat and snorkel with with them. Always went to places that so people say, oh, you know, don't go to that side of town and everything like that. Now, I understood they were warning me, but you know what? That's the part of town I wanted to see. Yeah, you know, like, and that's I, the real part. That That is. And so I always felt like I would do that travel. I have not been able to do that yet. You know, like I spent two years pretty much, you know, even though I'm fully vaccinated now and feeling comfortable, there's still a lot of other you know, the means of getting places has is not as quite as easy. So I'm, I'm waiting for that, and I'll have to be filled up with the things that I'm doing on LinkedIn and the responses and hearing things like you said to me and with the, the, the love of my family and grandchildren and daughter. And, and that's going to have to be 
the best I can do for right now. And then when I'm able to supplement it with actually going places and seeing people, maybe meeting some global goodwill ambassadors and and sitting around talking to them, you know, since they're all over the world. So I have a good plan. You know, I can hopefully I'll live long enough to, to do it. You're definitely going to live long enough to do it. I don't even want to hear that. <laughs> We're doing it. So you have, and by, and by the way, just so you know, I didn't even know this until the um, the soldier post. Okay. Cause I just, I just watch your stuff and I don't, I probably do need to get a lot more involved in stats, but I don't pay attention to any of that. I get in trouble sometimes because I don't pay attention to like likes and followers. I had no idea you had a million followers, over a million followers on LinkedIn. That is unbelievable. And you covered earlier, you had no intention of that. This was all organic growth. This is not paid growth. Right. I don't, I don't even know if you can. You know, I don't have any accounts synced. And my uh, following, because of the way I built it, is a diverse following. But with, more, with, with the 1.3 and some change, okay, that's amazing. But the thing that was really amazing for me or the thing that I want to point out to our listeners is the engagement, the amount of engagement on your posts, whether it be good or bad, and most of it is positive. I, I think I'd say 85% of it is positive, okay? And people really do innately, I think, want to be good and helpful and all these other, you know, kind of different things. And you do write back to everyone. You do engage with them. And this is not for money. This is just because of who you are. How did you get this way? Tell me how, what was it for you that when you look back and you go, this is the thing that shaped me, what is that? Obviously, I have more time when I'm not working that I, I can engage more. But I mean, the, the, the type of posts that I'm doing are for engagement. They're for, they're for people to think about and feel good about and stuff. So when I, you know, when I get somebody that writes a, a lengthy response about how it really moved them or whatever, I like to have that conversation. I like to at least say thank you to them for taking the time or in in a case where sometimes people will share their own stories that's similar to what I've shown on my post. And, you know, I, I thank them for sharing their story, which isn't always easy as, as you share the story with me earlier today. So I, you know, I think I enjoy that part. I know a lot of people do their own videos and show their own face a lot. That's really not my kind of post. I would rather do what I call my my metaphorical little post that, that might put a smile on somebody's face or let them feel good or or inspire them to share it with somebody else because that's that helps with engagement overall. It's a sincere form of flattery. I love that. I love that. What do you think is the biggest crisis going on right now in the world? I would definitely say that world hunger right now is, is the biggest crisis. There are, there are so many crises going on. There are crises. I mean, people have no idea that the country of Lebanon has not only not recovered from that blast, that there is massive hunger and starvation people out in the street, they just have no idea. So, you know, we put out a magazine called The Ambassador. It's free, a free magazine. And we fill it with articles from from people who write stories about these things to try to get that out to more people in the world. Because if you if you ask the the average American, they would think that the only crisis here is is political parties that can't get along. Wow, that's amazing. Have you ever thought about giving up? <laughs> no. I thought I would die working, but now I I never really did stop working. I just found this as more of a passion. And I, I wouldn't surprise me if my last breath was clicking a response to somebody on all my posts. Do you ever get overwhelmed or just feel like it's all too big, just drained and take like some time, like maybe a day off or... Do you ever just feel drained with what's going on or maybe comments back? Tell me about that. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm human. If you read a few 
things that are negative and stuff, you know, I kind of had to block people because I just don't want to see them put their negativity on, on post, you know, like again. And, um, so yeah, I go, go through that. And then, you know, like, like everybody else, I mean, I've, I've been, been through a life that's had its, had its bumps, which we all have, you know, fortunately I've survived them all. You know, I, I couldn't sing the Sinatra song that, you know, I, I have no regrets or whatever, you know. <laughs> so what's the one thing that keeps you up at night? Like a constant reoccurring, what is that one thought that keeps you awake? I do wor- worry for my grandchildren. I, I don't like the direction that is going on in the world with, with the hatred that exists. You know, maybe it's always been there. Maybe there's nothing I can do about it. But I would have hoped that we moved, had moved further along in the evolutionary process towards a more civil society. And, uh, you know, you, you watched uh, sci-fi shows where instead of the the ones where people are coming down trying to, aliens are coming down trying to kill us, the, you know, the, the good aliens, you know kind of come down and, and, and they've reached a level of nirvana. And I just would have hoped that we would be moving more towards that. Towards positive and towards gratitude. Towards positivity, yeah. towards giving to one another, towards charitable thing. And I'm pragmatic. I don't, I don't expect it to be, hand, I don't expect us to hand it. I expect people to, to work for their money. And I be, believe that people... People should do things because they should be helped help do healthy work because I think it's good for well-rounded people. But I, I think that the the work-life balance thing has got to be there, and I think that we just have to be kinder to, towards one another. And if you don't get how well I how strongly I feel about that, you only need to look at my post. That's what it's all about. Be kinder towards one another. I agree. Thank you so much for sharing that too. Richard, what country do you hope to get to first whenever you start traveling? I'd love to go back to Brazil. Wonderful people. And amazing food. Amazing, amazing food. So that's a, that would be a go back to, you know, I can, I'd definitely like to, to do New Zealand because it just looks so, so beautiful. And I want to talk to some of those Maori people, you know, they're cool. And and I'd, I'd like to, if I go to Australia, I, I want to talk to some of those people that are, are living, the Aboriginal people uh, there. You know, I, I mean, the, they're the things I envision in my head, you know, because visiting places where I can, where I can decide to go meet the natives as being, some people like to go on a safari. Some people like to go somewhere to go scuba diving and stuff like that. That's what gets me. That's why I visit, one of, I, I visit the small fishing villages because they're, they're the real people. Have you seen the, have you seen the show, uh, the Netflix special, Down to Earth? No, I haven't. You should see that. I think you'd really enjoy it. It covers like six or seven countries, but it, it doesn't do the tourist stuff. It goes really into the heart of what makes that area. I'll definitely look for that down to earth. Thank you. Yeah, down that. to earth. And New Zealand was on it. Oh, what? Yeah, and Sardinia was on it. Um, so it was really, really, really cool stuff. So yeah, you should take a look at that. Richard, this has been so fabulous. And thank you so much for agreeing to do this. If our listeners want to hear more and learn more about you and everything that that you're about and your foundation is about, can you tell them where to find you, please? Yes, uh, Global Goodwill Ambassadors, and that's with an S, dot org. Sign up for the website. Sign up for for the uh, Ambassador Magazine. It's free. There's courses on there. Like I said, some are free. Some cost $5 or $10, you know, depending on, on what the curriculum costs. They're not easy courses. They're tough courses, but they teach you things, real positive things, and, and you can get some some real real good lessons out of it. Incredible. And if they want to donate, where do they go to donate? Same. GlobalGoodwillAmbassadors.org gives you all the things. 
you can't just donate without putting what cause you want the money to go to. So there, that's what's important is, you know, make don't donate if, if, if there's not anything there. But I, I think there's enough things that we do. You know, we're doing one that just popped up as we're doing backpacks for veterans, children who were the vet. You know, like a lot of the veterans are very young people who are married and don't have a lot of money. So we're, we're actually having backpacks delivered to veterans through a veterans organization to different places, and they're filled with school supplies. You know, again, because uh, Lisa's such a good negotiator, we were able to f- get backpacks and filled that we can send for $15. So it's not like you got to spend a lot of money to to do something really nice for somebody, you know, like we don't, we don't have anything that we're asking for a lot, a lot of money for, you know, again, not we're all about, but, but thank you to anybody that does donate. We certainly appreciate it very much. Richard, thank you so much. I really appreciate sharing time with you today. Thank you, Stephanie. The pleasure was all mine. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Spin It. If you enjoyed listening, don't forget to hit the subscribe button to be notified when a new episode is released. The best way to support the show is to leave me a five-star review on Apple Podcast or your favorite podcast app. And if you want to hear more from me, hop over to Instagram and follow me at Stephanie Malik. That's Stephanie with a Y, S-T-E-P-H-Y-N-I-E Malik, M-A-L-I-K, or visit my website at stephaniemalik.com.